For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello, everyone. How are you all doing? I'm just here. I'm not here. I mean, I'm just here to pop in to tell you that this week we've got another guest host. You know how we did this in series five? Well, that was for a whole series. This is just every time I feel like it. But I do like this idea of mixing things up a bit. So from time to time, I will, when it's appropriate, invite a guest host to take over. I'll be back next week. But for now, I'm excited to introduce Nina van Falkenberg. So what happened was, Nina teaches at London College of Fashion, and we've been talking for a while about how we can better support new talent in terms of giving their work a platform and helping them sell it. Because if you think about it, new graduates often don't have the money to start producing collections at scale, and they're not wholesaling. Anyway, Nina's got this new business venture. It's called Retour, R-E-T-U-R-E. And through the website, customers can order upcycled one-offs and custom pieces from emerging sustainable designers. Now, every series I do a new talent episode, and usually these feature three designers. And this time, all the people that had on my list and planned to feature were working with Nina. So I've asked her to take over. I thought it'd be fun and I hope you like it. Now check out the show notes on thewardrobecrisis.com for all the info and links. Oh, and if you're in London this week, head to the Retour pop-up in Selfridges. Okay, I'm off now to put my feet up and let Nina do the talking. I'll be back next week. Hi, everyone. My name is Nina van Valkenberg, and I'm extremely excited to be your guest host for this season's new fashion talent episode of the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. I'm based in London, and I'm an academic at London College of Fashion, focusing on sustainable practices within business. I'm also the co-founder and CEO of Retour, a sustainable fashion marketplace where you can shop responsibly, but more so upcycle your garments um, that you already have in your wardrobe with incredible purpose-led designers. Today, I have the pleasure to be talking with three exciting new design voices we're working with at Retour. Olivia Rubens, a Canadian knitwear designer focused on upcycled and sustainable materials, some of which are even actively carbon sequestering while you're wearing them. Joao Marichin, a Brazilian designer based in London, operating with a community-oriented business model. And Joshua James Small, the creative polymath advocating for a sustainable fashion industry through his work as a women's wear designer using recycled and conscious materials. Now let's hear from Olivia Rubens, who calls herself a positive fashion designer and graduated from London College of Fashion in 2020. Olivia joins us from Canada. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Nina. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much for having me. So right before the UK went into lockdown, one of the final in-person fashion events for me was seeing the LCF MA graduate show at the Camden Roundhouse. And I distinctly remember thinking, oh my goodness, who is this designer with these amazing knit balaclavas? And I've never seen a style like yours before. I mean, your collection was on one hand so technically exquisite, and on the other hand, very dystopian with, you know, the doll head handbags, the deconstruction. 
Could you tell us what the influences behind your collection were? Yeah, thank you so much. Wow, yeah, seems like it's very odd. Uh, that was a time when I wasn't even thinking about COVID. It was on the other side of the world. And all I was thinking about was get this collection out on the runway. It was really about, you know, overall femininity and identity. My p- viewpoint in the end ended up being quite nihilistic, which was that we can never fully know who we are as people and as women. Uh, somebody said something to me once, which was just that in order to know yourself completely, you have to meet every single person on the planet because you'll present a certain version of yourself to every single different person. So unless you do that, it's impossible. So I kind of ran with that. I was also kind of making criticisms about myself and like I like to do, just kind of point out little uh, funny things about society and about myself and and, and other people. And uh, the way that we kind of assume people's identities, I think is hilarious. Like people watching, which was something, you know, at the time that I was doing a lot because I was sitting on the tube like so many hours of the day. So that was part of it. Um, Just kind of assuming people's like based on stereotypes and kind of making up stories in our heads because what else are we going to do when we're sitting on the tube? And then this this idea of uh, nature versus nurture So I used Victorian children as a reference. I just came across this little vintage book at uh, the vintage fair at Pitti Filati in Florence. And uh, I just thought it was so hilarious because these these children, which are, you know, they're supposed to be fun and playful and crazy, but they were just so static. And each one of them was so serious. And when I was reading up on Victorian photography, they had to compete with painters at the time. For some reason, it always turned out serious. And so all these photographs that they really styled them was like, we have to get it right. But when arguably now we would we would say that we capture someone's full essence when we get a candid photo of them. So I thought that was really funny. And then the the modern version of that was pageant girls. And do they become who they are because of their parents or because of them? Or did they choose to do that? And so there were some hilarious references in their garments. And I watched way too much reality TV in that. And which is where all the toys and the dolls came from in that whole collection. I think that's so relevant, especially today, you know, on social media, you have, you know, these kind of digital influencers and, you know, is this human? What are they saying? I mean, there's so much that we are reading into them, which is fascinating. And Mm -hmm. I mean, is it then a little bit ironic that, you know, one of your key pieces are actually these masks, these balaclavas? I mean, how how do you kind of link balaclavas to identity? Because essentially you're kind of you're hiding that identity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, masks are actually really powerful. They not only are used to conceal identity, this can also create like a a safety barrier. If you're not necessarily, if you're in a community, just talking like ritualistically or in different kind of tribes or societies, you can hide who you are and feel safe within your community and feel like you're a part of community. In that sense, they also create community. So I experimented with different versions of these because, you know, talking about identity, concealing and creating, and we all kind of wear masks on a daily basis, depending on the situation that we're in. So I wanted to put that at the forefront and really make it an explicit part of my uh, research and and probing kind of uh, why we put on the mask we put on. But I experimented with that with my knits and it was really... I discovered, I don't know, it's just fully like you were able to cover people's identity. Like if you just have a mask, you can see what's behind them, their hair and everything. But the balaclava did in a functional way, hide, you know, my models. And it created this world in a sense and really let your imagination go. But also they were vibrant, they were beautiful, they were playful, but they were still eerie. So I found that in the end, in in, like looking at myself as as a designer and working on my design identity throughout my master's, that that was that was who I was essentially, like someone playful, someone that like poked at things very explicitly, but also was a bit creepy. Mm-hmm. 
And I think especially you presented it February 2020. And actually, the first piece ever sold on our Retour website was one of your balaclavas from somebody in rural Japan. I mean, you're a knitwear designer. So I have to ask, why knitwear? I mean, is this something that started as a child for you? Actually, no. I learned how to hand knit in my third year of my BA, um, I was learning how to finger knit in Hong Kong uh, during my exchange. And I did a bit of machine knitting, but I'm really more self-taught and I've moved into machine knitwear, but they're so different like hand knitting and machine knitting. So it's really been uh, a work in, in progress. I think what I really love about knitwear, not only like the tactility of it and that you can wear something super cool, but also be like super comfy, which I think is my favorite part because I love oversized and I love comfy and I love color. But also the main thing is that you can build it from the ground up. I've always loved like textiles and textile design and bringing my vision to life from the the start, the baseline. But not only that, I find it's also easier to be more traceable, but also to be able to work more personally with my stakeholders and my collaborators, like farmers and dyers and everyone involved. Um, so I know where the whole process, I know where it's coming from and I know what's involved. And I think it allows for endless opportunity. Okay. Now that's really interesting. I mean, as well, one in five garments worldwide are, are knit. And so that impact of what materials you choose to work with is tremendous. I imagine it's a lot of work on your end, especially regarding research. Yeah, it takes a lot of footwork, especially because I guess my standards are quite high with regards to sustainability and what I'll, I'll put into my garments. I, I don't work with any virgin synthetics except for some elastic because it's necessary. Sometimes you have to weigh quality versus the sustainability and it makes a garment last like way longer and keep its shape. But aside from that, um, like got certification, some BCI, which is um, better cotton initiative and making sure that the alpacas are ethically treated and mohair and the, the sheep and everything. So it just honestly takes a lot of footwork. I've gone to a number of yarn shows, like from, you know, Italy to just like small little yarn shows where there's little kind of grandmas kicking around and with their patterns and all these, this embroidery and everything, but meeting farmers, that's the best place I found to meet farmers firsthand and talk to them about their goats and and everything and get to, and know that their process is ethical and exactly where they're coming from. But once you find those people, like those are the people I trust and I have them now and I'm, you know, I can work around it a little bit and find some new people, but I usually stick to the people I trust. Looking at some of your sustainable practices, not just material choices, but you upcycle a lot. And that's actually how you and I got in contact um, because Mm -hmm. of your upcycled pieces. I like to equally work in like supporting artisans, creators, farmers and scientists and making new innovations, but also preventing waste from ending up in landfill because... I mean, where else is it going to go? And it's a huge issue. You were involved in an incredible project um, with Dian Jen Lin from the Post Carbon Lab um, here in London, um, where you made knitwear that extracts carbon out of the atmosphere while you wear it. Mm. And you called these pieces living garments. Mm. So how does that work? That sounds incredible. Um, yeah, it's super exciting. I'm actually still working with them now on some new projects that I'm really excited about. But essentially how it works is the textile 
or the garment, if you want to do a full garment, is submerged in like essentially a giant Petri dish, which is like a bath that they've created. And it gets coated in a bacteria and the bacteria grows over one to two months. The garment turns green if it is like a white color. If it's already a color, it might turn brown or something like that. There's different things that they can add as well to prevent it from turning that color or to keep it that color. But essentially, you have to then keep it alive. It's like a plant. So you just mist it once a day and you can't throw it in the wash, but you can hand wash it a bit. But it is like an ongoing experiment. And just like a plant does, it sequesters carbon from the atmosphere and it breathes oxygen. And you have to keep it out of direct sunlight and things like that. But it's not a very temperamental, difficult plant. It's, it's quite easy to take care of. I love that idea of a garment that isn't just, you know, we've, we've heard the term, you know, carbon neutral mm-hmm. and, you know, rather passive, but this is actually interacting with ourselves, our environment, and that just mm-hmm. opens so many doors for the future. But what kind of reactions did you get from people? I mean, you know, people taking care of their garments as they would like a plant. Do you think that mm-hmm. that would actually go into the mainstream? I I hope so. It's just that at the moment, like because it's a new innovation, it's not entirely feasible, like financially. So it might have to, after this first collection, be like smaller pieces. You know, I was talking to to Post Carbon Lab about it. And on an individual level, there is a a small amount of impact. But on a level, like if you say I made a whole line of handbags, like small handbags, like that is a huge amount of carbon sequestered from the environment. So I'm hoping that we can figure out the costs associated with it and make it feasible. And I hope that people won't think it's too much work. And I think like the most interesting thing is that a lot of people are inherently a bit selfish. And the thing with sustainability is like, you see yourself as such a small person on this planet and you're like, well, what can I do? Like, and why does it matter? But in this, it does make it really individual and and showing like what you can do as a single person. So I'm hoping that that will make a a difference and that people will care. Mm -hmm. I'm working on actually a capsule collection with a store and making a collection, a full collection that's coded. And this will be hugely like impactful to see how it will go into the commercial sphere and I'll have to establish like new post-purchase relationships with these customers because, you know, if they're up to it, they can report back and say, hey, like I, I spilled wine on it at this party and it just blossomed, you know, <laughs> or, you know, I did something wrong and it started dying because when it dies, it actually turns brown. Um, so you have to keep taking care of it and make sure you do things right. So um, I think developing a new relationship with the clients, but also the clients developing a new relationship with their garments. And hopefully just as we do with plants, like I love plants, (laughs) they like, you know, to be able to develop kind of a love and care for this garment, like a real, real love. What really strikes me is how you're focused on work that actually creates a positive impact. One initiative um, was actually your work with the Octavia Foundation. And yet you're using your voice to actually help others, whether it comes to, you know, cyberbullying, you know, self-esteem. So what is your role as a designer then in actually, you know, being accountable and really, you know, standing up for others? Do you feel pressure in that sense? Uh, No, not really uh, pressure. I think, um, like, from my background, being bullied and being like this weird, like, eccentric child and gladly stubbornly so so that I could be the person that I am 
it's something that I hope that I can create more personal connections through with my brand and to create like a, a community where each voice matters. So I'm going to be launching a kind of like a celebratory journal entry campaign this summer, creating some some garments that can be wear, worn by anyone. Um, so it'll be a variety of, of people, different genders and backgrounds and sizes, and they'll be able to celebrate what they haven't been able to do in COVID and, and also what COVID has taught them about themselves. So I, I hope that I can push for my brand to, to lift people up. You were also you know, heavily impacted by COVID, having to move back to Canada. What was the biggest struggle for you this past year, this past kooky year, and how did you overcome it? The biggest challenge I definitely faced was mental health challenges and fashion and something that I think I've been putting off for a really long time and been moving at such a pace that I couldn't ever like explore it or realize that it was there was an issue. And I was always normalizing it or saying, you know, it's not there. It's just stress and it's normal. You know, it's, uh, don't worry about it. Like you'll be fine. But (laughs) there were issues that I, and I developed like strategies to deal with them over years, but maybe not healthy strategies. So in the past year, you know, I've started therapy. I've gone, I found out I have generalized anxiety and adult ADHD. And I think a lot of people in the industry suffer from those and we need to destigmatize that and unpack the industry and like that isn't okay <laughs> you know the lack of sleep that we get in school and I, I just don't think i think that we need to incorporate more balance and that's something that's been trial and error this whole year like i'm in and out of burnout the whole year after my masters and you know having all of the the weight of covid like mentally and and everything that's happened coming out of my masters and then you know trying to get back to work has been a huge challenge but it's getting better day by day and and finding new strategies to cope and and finding new ways to alleviate my my burnout i guess and and to make sure that i'm giving myself the respect that i deserve cuz as a creative being we're inherently like our our purpose and our job and our passion is inherently tied to our being. So we have to respect that body and our mind. And I think that's super important. The other thing is just, you know, staying in a small city, I'm still in Ottawa encountering the status quo and, and, you know, saying everybody has to, if you want to make it big, you have to be in a big fashion city, but so much stuff is remote now that I think you can still maintain relevancy being in a, in a, in another city. And it's challenging for sure, um, logistically, but I'm hoping to make it work because I can have my balance here, but then still do what I love. It's been great to be camping and hiking and on my bike. And it also revitalizes my passion for what I do and sustainability, like what I want to protect and what I want to change and what I want to do. And it's a constant source of inspiration, but also to allow me to focus on something that isn't work. And when I'm, you know, cycling or, or whatever, like or hiking, like I'm just focusing on what I'm doing. And I think it's really good to get the brain powering and to process your thoughts and put two and two together in ways that you wouldn't in your subconscious, but also to give your brain a, a break and to, to work on your focus as well is really good. So it's been a great year for that. No, excellent. Well, Olivia, a final question for me. What gives you hope for the future of fashion? What gives me hope is all these amazingly talented and passionate and determined new designers like Bethany Williams and Maddie Bovin, people who are giving people voices, but also doing things the way they want to do it and breaking the status quo and that they're being recognized for that. 
And it's kind of also now become a status quo in university. Like so many students have so many amazing ideas and are pushing this field to the forefront and making it the core of what they do. So the industry didn't get as much of a rehaul as I would have hoped from COVID. (laughs) Um, You know, things kind of kept going. I don't know how, (laughs) but I mean, the only thing is that some collections are quite behind, but you know, they're still out, but I, I don't know. I hope that it makes us appreciate it more. And I think that just the number of amazing new minds that are coming to the fore are going to be revolutionary for this industry. Now let's hear from Joshua James Small, the sustainable women's wear designer and also model, stylist and writer. Well, I was going to say Josh introduced myself and Claire. So this is all actually possible I because did. of you, Josh. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Hi, Joshua. Um, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. It's so good to hear from you. Where are you calling in from? I am currently in Wiltshire at the moment. I was in London yesterday. I have split my life between multiple different places. You are quite the modern Renaissance man. You write for different publications. You were a model in our Retour launch campaign. You present at London Fashion Weeks. I mean, you wear so many different hats. So really kind of capturing what's going on in the zeitgeist in different forms, whether that's, you know, design or writing. And I mean, I'm just looking at you uh, behind you and you have all of these glossy magazines, which I love. And what really inspires you? Who are your heroes in that space? Well, the reason I got into this in- industry was images. It's, it's that rich imagery that you can create at the end of it. Obviously, I've become interested in subsects of everything I do. So with sustainability, I'm much more interested academically. But with design sp- specifically, it is those images, it's this end result. I work really hard to make sure that you get a really nice image at the end of it because I've grown up reading ID days, all of these wonderful, rich magazines that have beautiful imagery in them and I would like to be part of that cultural conversation because that's what it is it's a cultural conversation you're creating imagery and an idea you're pushing the conversation and obviously through my writing I push my the conversation more so with sustainability and I try to interlink that with my design so I hope that those facets kind of interlink with each other I grew up looking at shows by Galliano by McQueen by JPG these really iconic designers these are the people that I adore um, and still to this day I guess uh, there's no specific one. I just like the idea of how these people move the cultural conversation. Like you were saying, the zeitgeist, it's just, it's about being involved in culture, essentially. I remember being a kid and as kids do, you know, they say, oh, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a designer or whatever. And I do remember doing some really awful drawings with one of my best friends when I was like, probably like seven or eight. And it was probably of like a jumper or something like that. But I don't think that necessarily informed what I was going to do because I went into studying art and uh, and then studying graphic design before I changed during my foundation to do fashion because one of my tutors was uh, told me that I had such a knowledge about different designers and different because I was reading all these magazines I used to work in a news agent so I, I used to buy all these fashion magazines and read them heavily and I knew designers and what was what I liked what I didn't like and then my tutor told me through my foundation that I should perhaps just try fashion try making and I picked it up so fast Favourite McQueen moment is, there are two, but I will go, one of them would be Platus Atlantis, but that's because it holds personal significance. I remember being 
we basically, we because I'm from a working class background, we couldn't afford broadband. We had dial-up internet still when Platters Atlantis went out, which is crazy um, because it was cheaper. But that meant the internet connection was really slow. So I waited three hours to watch it fully because I had to wait. I know it was a live stream, but you could watch it after it had live streamed. So I waited three hours for it to load so I could watch it unbuffered. And I remember sitting, because our computer was under the stairs at the time, I remember sitting in this very dark, under the stairs um, computer room and watching this show. And it was really so emotive. But then, as I obviously delved more into his history, another would be the Kate Moss moment with that beautiful, I think it's the oyster dress. Those dresses, for me, I mean, I think you can probably see that they do influence some of my work because I really love this loose ruffle that you get with a chiffon, which I guess links into why I make clothes that aren't necessarily the most marketable, you know, ready to wear. Like, you can't make thousands of these pieces because I like to create pieces that I guess are more a hit between art and fashion. So you're creating something that is more than just a piece of clothing. It creates a conversation. And the output of your design work in particular, it's deeply glamorous and it really epitomizes, you know, craft, slow fashion. I saw on Instagram, one of your uh, dresses, I believe took 150 hours to complete. Unfortunately, most of my, fortunately or unfortunately, most of my samples are labor intensive. I really like these rich textiles, these things that take a long time. And then I try to incorporate that in into my design afterwards. I like the idea that someone will look at a piece and understand that it's taken a long time. I like that it is a form of art that you look at it and you can understand that that person has really labored over it and crafted it into that piece. And I think that's also where the industry is moving essentially, because I don't think we have an influx of clothing. People, we have more than we would ever need for necessity um, alone. So when people purchase into pieces of clothing, they're not necessarily looking for something for necessity anymore because you can find that in any charity shop, in any high street shop, you can find that at every corner. So when people really want to invest in something, they want something special. My favorite pieces of clothing I know that I've bought myself are labored over and also the materials that you use are very innovative. And what's coming to mind is that you have a great houndstooth bag, which I believe is made from dead stock material from Wales Bonner, if I'm correct. Yes. Well, that was, do you know, that was actually something I pillaged years ago now. I've managed to get quite a lot of it. So I still have bits of it I can still utilize. But I mean, as with any sort of dead stock, it's random and infrequent. So I kind of take what I can from sometimes from designers that are getting rid of dead stock. Sometimes it's from, there are now stores that get rid of dead stock. So it's kind of like a a chain sort of thing. Sometimes it's from companies like Swarovski or Ultrafabrics where they'll donate me their dead stock that's overproduced and they can't use it anymore. Uh, Most recently, I've started to purchase fabrics from scrap stores. So there are lots of different scrap stores around the UK. And it's like dead stock, anything really. It's lots of rubbish. It can be rubbish. It can be fabric. It can be anything. There's one near me that I recently found and I managed to purchase an enormous roll of this beautiful cotton um, fabric, which honestly, I'm surprised that anyone would want to throw it away because I was, I asked about it, inquired about it and they were going to, they were literally just going to throw it away before they decided to sell it to me for a ridiculously cheap price. Yeah. Specifically talking about that bag, it's got lots of different elements to it because it utilizes dead stock designer. It utilizes Swarovski pearls on top of it. The thread is a recycled polyester um, and then it's lined with a sustainably certified bamboo silk so it's there's a lot of thought that goes into all of that and i also think that that sort of thing comes with time because i talked to some recent graduates recently that asked me how do i source all this fabric how do i do that and i honestly do think it is just a thing that comes with time i don't think you're gonna start working as a sustainable designer and 
know exactly where to source the right fabrics from because there is no right or wrong technically it's just about being responsible with what you make but i think obviously the longer you're in this game the more you know where to source from for dead stock where to cleverly get it and you can get it more much faster so i i can now if someone asks me to do a custom order i i can feel fairly confident in that i can source the right materials your previous collection was called Through These Tears. And your press notes, I'll read just a little sentence here, but it says, Mm. as a brand, we cannot claim to be perfect, but we hope to set a reliable precedent and a strong catalyst for further development. We are always open to conversation, critique, and suggestions for further improvement. That's very honest and very humble. And I ask... Is there an added pressure for you, an added expectation when you're labeled as a sustainable women's wear designer? I I definitely think there is. I feel like I notice it more and more the more I do. With every project that's a bit larger, that has a larger audience, I do get a bit anxious about it because I'm very aware that we live in an age of call-out culture and like cancel culture and we live in an age of like the court of public opinion. So you can work as hard as you can for years and it'll only take one tweet or one TikTok to make your work seem insignificant because someone doesn't necessarily understand that you really have put a lot of work into this. So for me, I think it's better for me to state that I am, because I don't, I, no one is perfect. They can, you can play, you can try and brand yourself as the most perfect, sustainable designer brand there is but to be a sustainable designer is an oxymoron because to be a a truly sustainable designer would be to make absolutely nothing at all and obviously this is our craft this is what we do so you have to balance that so you have to just make responsibly therefore you have to be honest with the consumer you have to say i'm working really hard i'm trying my best sort of thing but obviously there might be people and i know there are people that do probably do a better job than i and there are probably people that look at me and think i do a better job than them so i think mm-hmm. it's all about having an open discussion because my friends and my peers were all sustainable designers and we all i think suggest fabric suppliers things like that where to get things from because nobody really knows how to do this there is no correct way of doing this essentially and you're not taught in university or you definitely weren't taught in university when i was there how to be a sustainable designer in fact sustainability wasn't really a conversation it was i remember Mm -hmm. being one of about two in a class of like 40 people that were was discussing sustainability i was told it really wasn't a feasible option for this industry so i don't think that many people know how to go about this there isn't a right or wrong it's just about being responsible and trying your best i think so i i have a uh, on my website now and obviously with my press release i like to give a good list of what i do do um so mm-hmm. that people understand that i am trying my best and this is what i can do at the moment and obviously if someone reads that and thinks well he could be doing this better then why not tell me i'd rather they tell me than I suppose, like publicly shame me for not being a perfect brand. I'd rather they just mm-hmm. get in touch and say, hey, this is how you can do better. No, I, I love that. And for you in particular, I mean, you're so good at communicating, you know, in different mediums. And one that I'm thinking of in particular is just going onto your social media. I mean, I enjoy going onto your profile and learning, um, you know, whether it's about fashion history or how to upcycle a garment. But What's your relationship then with social media? I mean, you mentioned earlier, you know, there's this sense of call-out culture, but on, on the other side, you can educate people. So yeah, how, how do you explain that for yourself? I think it's always shifting. I have no shame in saying Instagram is where I 
started all of this, going way, 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 way back before I had any sort of influence or any sort of audience to do anything at all. I used to use Instagram to reach out to people because I think it's really, and I did this yesterday, actually. I read, I, I, I bought a magazine and I read a piece and I thought it was really, really engaging. I was really impressed by this long read that I'd read. So I just messaged the writer. I had, I'd never heard of him before, but I just messaged him and said, I thought this was really interesting. Um, and he followed me back and we've had a nice open discussion about it. It was an interview with Samuel Ross from A Cold Wall and it was written by Jack Self and it touched on class identity, class alignment and also obviously Samuel Ross is a prominent black designer at the moment so it touched on elements of that and how he sits within the industry. I might never get a response but at least I've tried, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? And you message them and that's how I started all of this. That's how I guess people got to know me and got to know my work because I just started in, engaging in open conversation. That's how I worked at Richard Quinn. He needed people to work there and he put something out on Instagram. So I DM'd him um, and he asked me to come in the next day. And within a week, I was working there for the, for his first season. So oh, it's very fantastic. <laughs> it, it, it's very organic. Um, and also coming from a working class background myself, social media is a very democratic way of working. I'm able to do things through social media that I wouldn't be able to or engage in conversations that I wouldn't necessarily have access to if I didn't have Instagram or Twitter. If I didn't have these ways of interacting with people, I'm almost certain there is no way I would be able to engage with all these different people. We probably wouldn't be having this conversation today, sadly, because there's no way I would be able to get my work to the platform of or to the equivalent platform of designers that have far more uh, monetary leverage. You self-described yourself with um, Checkout Magazine recently Hmm. and saying that you're a working class gay man and self-confessed nature boy on a mission to change the way we think about fashion consumption. I read a book many, many years ago and someone was very involved in, I suppose, nature and sustainability and they defined themselves as a nature boy. And I thought, oh, that is a wonderful, uh, and I am myself, I'm a phrase collector. So if someone says something that I think is interesting or fun, because I love language, I'll just collect it. And so this person defined themselves in this book, I can't even remember what it was, which is terrible, but it was many years ago as a nature boy. And I just thought, you know what, that actually does perfectly define me because I, I was born and I have lived my whole childhood in Wiltshire. So I am surrounded by a lot of outdoors, you know, fields and trees. And there's literally a lake five minutes from me. So I spend a lot of time outside. That's where I am most happy. Honestly, it is very short and simple. I mean, I can go into long explanations about this, but essentially, as a designer, you need to produce produce less, produce well, and make it last. You need to make pieces that are really high quality that will last the test of time. And then the same as a consumer, you need to buy less, but buy well, Mm -hmm. and then make that last. I am working on a new body of work at the moment. I don't know whether at the moment whether I will plan to release it in September. I mean that it was the original aim, but I've never been the kind of person that's like I've got to stick to this schedule because because I want to make sure that whatever I'm making is high quality. So if I decide at the end of this month that I don't think I'm going to hit target to do finish a body of work, photograph it well and put it out in the way I want to put it out for September, then I will just delay it. I'll do it later. You you don't have to be this enormous, encompassing studio. Last but certainly not least, let's hear from Joao Marajin, also a graduate from London College of Fashion in 2020 and winner of this year's Graduate Award at the Draper Sustainable Fashion Awards. Joao joins us from London. Hi, Joao. Thank you for joining. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Finally, London is like in such great weather and yeah, I'm very happy. <laughs> 
an optimistic chapter ahead. <laughs> Joelle, I'm so glad that you could join us on the wardrobe crisis today. And I remember first seeing your work back in early 2020. It was your graduate show um, from LCF. And I remember everyone in the audience was just so mesmerized by your work and especially kind of the Mondrian-like checkered pieces that went down the runway. And I mean, it was just, you know, the textures, you know, the colors that you used. And the collection was called Foreigner Traveler. Was this a reference to your experience as a Brazilian designer based in London? That's a very great question. Yes and no, I would say. I think it was firstly of course, based on the experience of moving to London and arriving with a completely different cultural background to a completely different place as well. But as the masters progressed and the collection evolved, I think the direction became about the idea of being a foreigner to someone else. I was inspired by the idea of exploring the idea of movement, not only along the edges of geographical borders, essentially, which was connected to my experience of coming here, but also the cultural, bodily, sentimental ones I was reading uh, Lizette uh, Lanado. She said that those kind of territories where one has to switch back and forth between languages to translate concepts, to negotiate meanings, where the self essentially has the experience of being another. So tell us something that we might not know about fashion in Brazil. One thing that we, might, we don't know about, about Brazil, perhaps, is that because it's almost like a continental country, You've got all seasons and all sort of things in, in the same place, essentially, and a variety of styles. And, and so, for example, the south where I'm from is very, very European and it's very cold. It's like minus five degrees in winter and 45 degrees in summer. So you do have a Brazil opportunity, perhaps, that kind of, you know, ranges across all sorts of collections and all sorts of, of public and, and different things. And I also think that the industry as a whole, the local industry is very uh, resourceful in the sense of like, there are all sorts of skills and all sorts of things that perhaps we wouldn't need to outsource anywhere else. But we are so sort of like driven by this idea, this Eurocentrism and this idea of that Europe kind of is the foundation for fashion, essentially. And sometimes we, we look for things that are somewhere else, but actually they are in front of us in our own territory. So I think that's definitely something about Brazil that I would love people to sort of know more about. We don't need to be looking elsewhere. Brazil has its own fashion identity, essentially, and it's very rich and it's very, you know, full. One of the new things is that the third collection, which I'm going to be launching during London Fashion Week at the Discovery Lab, will be also uh, sold in Brazil for the first time. So because, you know, it makes sense. A lot of the work happens there with the artisans. So I think I need the consumer to have access to all of that story and all of that narrative and be able to buy into that, into that narrative as well. So I understand there's quite a lot of fast fashion in Brazil, but could you tell us a little bit more about the sustainability scene? Brazil is quite sort of like a country that offers many opportunities. A lot of people come from other countries uh, around South America because the industry is much bigger. Uh, there's more population, essentially. And I think, you know, not everyone is well-intentioned. The fashion revolution in Brazil, they're incredible. And, you know, there are so many resources. And I think the conversation of sustainability is very, very much there. And it's happening at the same time that it's happening in Europe or anywhere else in the world. And I think, you know, we are, as a whole industry in Brazil, we're trying to catch up and sort of like really address sustainability as, you know, the starting point for anything. Because the way I see it is that sustainability is absolutely non-negotiable. 
And I'd love to get a little bit more about you and, you know, what made you really move halfway around the world? I think I always wanted to come here, to be honest. And I was definitely driven by the opportunity to pursue studies in sustainability, as well as hone my skills around creative direction for fashion, uh, which is the way we sort of like develop fashion in Brazil is very different to, to the way it's approached here. And so you were working in fashion beforehand, but in Brazil. So I worked for a very different couple of brands in Brazil, actually, for menswear, for women's wear, for children's as well, for more than seven years. A lot of them were high street and very much product driven and sort of looking at fashion trends. But I think the difference is really much kind of to the access we have to information. And sustainability is quite a recent topic where sort of like these days you see most brands actually talking about it and kind of implementing ideas around it. But 10 years ago, or even six years ago, ago when I moved here, that conversation was very, very little. The idea of upcycling and the idea of like recycling materials, and that was not always welcomed, if you like. So uh, I think I was always sort of like trying to challenge those, those things and sort of bring that person that was kind of like poking and sort of like sparking different understandings and, and different relationships with, between designer and material, essentially, to, you know, produce a different sort of outcome. And this is something that's quite prominent in your work today. Um, I remember being in your studio and you showing me, you know, it's amazing kind of vest out of leaf leather. And then you also have like, some great knitwear made out of kind of copper wires. I mean, how do you find these materials? I also worked recently with uh, bike tires cycling through London and getting punctures all the time and sort of seeing that becoming a waste. Sometimes it's just like a, a personal interest or it's something that comes from the research. But I think I'm very much driven by bringing those unusual materials into a fashion context. The, the sandals that are on the Retour website are made out of that, that bike tube, inner tube, and they're in collaboration with Tabitha Ringwood, I believe. This partnership with, with Tabitha is, as any of the partnerships that I have with other collaborators, a long-term one. One of the challenges was that we didn't want to work with anything new. So the whole shoe comes from bike tires. It's very much environmentally friendly because it has no leather. The heels are upcycled from, from shoes that were in charity shops. It has no sort of like new materials that are part of it. Everything is actually something that was already out there in, in the world and perhaps was disposed as waste. And we gave it a second chance and kind of like turned into something very special and very different. And it's extremely desirable. And I think, you know, looking at your collections, you know, the first instance is, wow, I mean, this is a beautiful piece. And then you read the backstory and you think, oh, wow, I mean, there's, you know, th there's zero waste. Um, you know, it's built by artisans. Um, you know, there's this added value. Speaking about artisans, I know that you collaborate closely um, with various communities and you've said that your brand really takes this business model approach of kind of community focused. How do you, first of all, find collaborators to work with? And how do you make sure that they're benefiting, that there's a positive impact for those communities? This is the starting point for any anything and any sort of like new family of products that I start designing has to have the the artisans as, as a vital part of it so having said that i think my collaborations aim to understand to reflect and to promote change through making essentially 
my manifesto as a brand is very much based around a bunch of verbs, really, that translate into action. So the way I ensure that I'm not only very importantly, of course, raising awareness is to have factual objectives and measure them throughout the work. So it's very much based on action and how much social mobility uh, I can create with the work. So, for example, we started working with a community of embroideries uh, two years ago, previous to my first collection on the Masters, essentially. And my first contact was really much to this one lady in one small town in, in Brazil called Itabira. And she was an embroiderer her whole life, and she's 75 this year. She was not working anymore because she was, you know, basically left behind by the system. And that's kind of a, that will lead me also to talk about aging and, and all of the idea of growing older, not only on the consumer side, but also on the artisan side. Together, we envision this opportunity of bringing our forces, our creative forces and, and our skills together. And we created a small hub funded by her and, and myself and the brand, essentially, where we started in the first month uh, working with three people. And that throughout these two years, we are seven people already. And the way I see that also having a positive impact, small things like, for example, one of the artists, essentially, she lives in a very remote place. And since she started working with us a year ago, she didn't have a computer and now she does. So I really see sort of like, you can tell that their livelihood is definitely improving. And that comes very much from the work that we did together. Also, um, you know, looking at your collections, which, um, you know, kind of target a more mature demographic, um, which is incredibly important, you know, regarding inclusivity. I mean, are there older women in your own life that have really shaped you? Uh, I think by having an approach of life, for example, all of the fittings I do, they are all with older women. And then the campaigns uh, that are very much based on kind of like pushing on that agenda as well. As cheesy as it sounds, you know, you're always influenced by all of your maternal figures and the women in your life. So my mum, my sister, my grandmother. You must miss your family. Oh, I do. And it's been so long since I saw them for the last time it was two years ago. And yeah, I miss them a lot. I think they're all always very present in the whole development. They were always the ones that, you know, really sort of not only influenced, but really sort of like supported the practice. And even if sometimes they thought that was a bit crazy, something that I was doing, they thought, yeah, that's great. If you really believe and trust that vision. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you.